This is an Area Code podcast. This is Wildwood Flower, stories of women who built country music. I'm your host, Jack Peterson, a lifelong music fan and country music outsider, trying to embrace a genre I've always held at a distance. This first season, we're learning about women at the root of commercial country music in the 1920s. Today, we're learning from the life and music of Cleoma Bro Falcone. The Columbia record men changed their minds. They had been recording multi-piece jazz and string bands and orchestras. They knew the power of many instruments playing together, and they knew how to capture that power with their recording device. As record companies continued to capitalize on their race records, music by ethnic and racial minorities marketed toward those markets, Columbia entertained the idea of recording Cajun music. The company advertised auditions and attracted a group in Crowley, Louisiana, just west of Lafayette. A trio, a male singer, a female guitarist, and a male multi-instrumentalist. The trio makes its way to New Orleans, though the travel is rough, along with their manager. The bedraggled trio, manager and tow, walk into the satellite studio, and the record men are having none of it. We've made a mistake. There's no way to get the sound we want out of so few people. They move to cancel the session. Their manager convinces the record men to let them audition, but then the singer gets stage fright and backs out. The other man in the group, Joe, agrees to sing, accompanied by the woman, Cleoma. The A&R men are not impressed by the audition, but the manager works his magic again. He convinces them to cut one record, print 500 copies, and he would guarantee the sale of all 500. The company has nothing to lose with a guaranteed sale of the first and probably only run of an otherwise risky act. Columbia agrees. Joe and Cleoma Bro Falcone ready themselves. Joe takes over vocals. Cleoma takes out her guitar, and the two record the first commercial Cajun record. Joe later says, They used to record with big orchestras. They looked at us and said, That's not enough music to make a record. And it was all them stiff collars with coats on in there, with their highfalutin. At the top, we should answer the question, Why Cajun music in a country music podcast? Just like hillbilly and blues music, Cajun music is part of the mix of southern vernacular music that eventually became labeled country music. We don't need to look any further than Hank Williams' number one hit, Jambalaya on the Bayou, in 1952, to see the mainstream appeal of a Cajun sound in country music. Jambalaya, crawfish pie, a feely gumbo. Cause tonight I'm gonna see Mama Shazamio. Pick it tough, fill fruit jar, and be gay. Son of a gun, we'll have big fun on the bio. 
a great treatment on Cajun music's influence in country music, listen to the opening of Tyler Mahan Co.'s Cocaine and Rhinestones podcast episode on Doug Kershaw. Listen to the whole thing, actually. It's great for many reasons. This isn't a Macy's sending customers to Gimbal's kind of thing here. It's probably more like your corner grocery sending you to Costco. Anyway, if you like what I'm doing, you'll probably enjoy Cocaine and Rhinestones too. And that episode is of particular relevance to what I'm doing here. In case you don't listen to that episode or know much about Cajun history, here's a very brief overview. French Canadians from Acadia are forced from their homes by the British in a time called the Great Expulsion from 1755 to 1764 during the French and Indian War. Those who weren't killed by the British settle in southern Louisiana, where they make a life among the native Afro-Creole and white Americans living there. The term Cajun is derived from Acadian. Cajuns maintain their French language, and the music they make consists of fiddle, with some style adapted from black and white string bands, accordion, introduced by German immigrants, later guitar, and often with triangle as percussion. Before the 1920s, one function of Cajun music was to provide music for weekly community dances. These dances were opportunities for young men and young women to court under the strict supervision of their parents. The women would be on one side of the room and the men would be on the other side. Sometimes there were cages or barriers separating the groups. All dancing happened in the middle under the watchful eye of the parent chaperone. No woman could enter the dance hall unchaperoned. No woman could leave the dance hall unchaperoned. Being unchaperoned could be ruinous to a young woman's reputation, and reputation was everything. Cleo Mabro is born in this strict society on May 27, 1906, to Auguste and Matilda in Acadia Parish. Her parents give her three brothers, Amid, Ophi, and Clifford, it is a musical family, and the children all became multi-instrumentalists, initially playing only for family entertainment. Cleoma first becomes proficient on guitar, developing a solid rhythm guitar style all her own, while also learning the fiddle and accordion. At the age of 11, Cleoma's father abandons the family. Her mother is forced to find work as a domestic helper and is often gone, leaving Cleoma to adopt a mothering role to her three rambunctious little brothers. To add to the family income, Cleoma and her brothers begin playing music at dance halls. Women were not playing music outside of the home at this time, and by this point these are not the heavily chaperoned dance halls of the past. The dance hall scene is becoming rowdier, more male-dominated, with freely flowing alcohol. Cleoma's rowdy brothers fit right in, maybe a little too much. At 15, Cleoma marries a guitarist named Oliver Hanks. The marriage doesn't work, for reasons we do not know, and they are quickly divorced. This is a drastic step to take, one that could ruin a reputation and could have dire consequences, particularly for a family in near poverty like the Bros. There must have been a compelling enough reason for the marriage to dissolve. The divorce doesn't seem to have had the ruinous effect it might have. Cleoma was by many accounts very attractive. Her fashion was of the cutting-edge flapper style. She made it a point to always look her best. She had many male suitors. 
She and her brothers kept playing their music, occasionally joined by other local musicians. A guitarist named Joe Falcone starts hanging around Cleoma and begins playing music with her and her brothers. Cleoma and Joe begin to fall in love. It's 1928 when Joe sees the advertisements about the auditions in New Orleans, and the pair make the first commercial Cajun music record through Columbia. The record turns out to be a hit and leads to a boom in Cajun music recordings. Columbia wants more. They invite Joe and Cleoma to New York to record six more sides in 1928. My French is terrible. I'm going to butcher a lot of these words. I apologize for that. Including Le Vieux Solar et Sa Femme, which is a reworking of an old English folk song. And Marie Boulet. Joe and Cleoma are becoming famous and begin to expand their regional live performances, and Columbia invites them to record again in 1929, this time in Atlanta. This time they take the brothers along. One big hit from this session is Ma Blonde Est Partie, for which Cleoma is credited as the writer and maybe the vocalist, but it's more likely that both the writing and the singing should be credited to her brother Ami. <laughs> Like many other music acts in the late 1920s, Cleoma and Joe were hit hard by the Great Depression. Columbia and other record labels stopped recording Cajun music altogether between 1930 and 1934. Cleoma and Joe maintain a living, playing live music as often as they can. Through Joe's tireless self-promotion, they become dance hall royalty. They marry in 1931 and quickly adopt a daughter, Lula. Just like she did for her brothers when her father abandoned the family, Cleoma makes her home a calm, stable place in the midst of chaos and uncertainty. Cleoma is able to walk the balance of serene domesticity with the rough and rowdy dance hall ways. She's able to be a divorced woman playing music in the traditional society while maintaining a dignified reputation. She is able to be on the cutting edge of fashion and musical trends, sometimes earning the jealousy of women, while still maintaining the devotion and admiration of her traditional Cajun community. 
Her brothers are not so reputable. They drink too much. They fight a lot. Cleoma and Joe do what they can to help out, finding Amid employment and taking in his son Preston, probably due to Amid's alcoholism. Lula would later say that Cleoma was always helping others, cooking and cleaning for sick neighbors and things like that. Joe and Cleoma move from Crowley to the country, a dream of Joe's. Cleoma hates it. She misses the city. She misses playing cards with her friends. On top of this, Lula contracts polio, and the family has to drive to Shreveport frequently for treatment. As part of the treatment, the doctors wouldn't allow any physical touch, no hugs or kisses. This was hard on Cleoma, who wanted to show affection to her ailing daughter. Occasionally, Lula needed long hospital stays, and Cleoma was not always able to stay with her. Cleoma eventually convinces Joe to return to the city, though Joe brings a bit of the country with him and illegally keeps a pig in the back shed of their rental home. They buy a radio and listen religiously to the Grand Old Opry. Cleoma, always looking to expand her horizon, begins to incorporate some of these hillbilly songs into her repertoire. She also makes the choice to teach Lola only English, not French. In a later interview, Lola suspects that her mother wanted her to be different, to stand out and be prepared for life outside of her French-speaking Cajun community. They weather the depression until the record companies start recording again in 1934. They record four sides for Bluebird in 1934 in San Antonio. Also in 1934, they are scheduled to record in New Orleans. Part of the trip required their bus to catch a ferry. While on the bus, on the ferry, the ferry started to sink and the bus began to fill with water. Cleomba's thoughts went to her daughter, whom they left in Louisiana. They were rescued, and though shaken, they did make their recording date. Cleomba wrote a song for Lula called Crowley Walt as a result of that experience, which was among the 12 songs they recorded that session. This New Orleans session also marks Cleoma's mixing of Cajun music with blues and hillbilly music that were becoming popular at the time. She began translating blues and hillbilly songs into French. Here's the French version of Raise My Window High. later they would record an English version of the same song. Me, 
song shares some lyrics with the famed blues song Going to Chicago, recorded by Count Basie in 1941, though some believe its lyrical origins predate Cleoma Bro's 1934 French-language version. When you see me coming, raise your window high. Cleoma and Joe were more popular than ever, though they weren't making much money from recording. The bulk of their income came from almost nightly dance hall performances. Cleoma started writing and performing English songs to accompany her French language recordings. Cleoma still tried to look her best at all times. Before each performance, she bathed, quaffed her hair like movie star Clara Bow, primped her dresses, wore pointed toes, spiked heels, and put on rouge before entering the violent dance halls. During one particularly rowdy dance hall performance, a drunken man made his way to the stage and lewdly began to shout at her. He wouldn't relent, and after one particularly ribald comment, she kicked him in the face, putting his eye out with her trademark high-heeled, pointed-toed shoes. In 1937, they recorded in Dallas. One of the songs they cut was the Carter family's My Bonnie Blue Eyes. Goodbye, my little Bonnie Blue Eyes. Goodbye, my little Bonnie Blue Eyes. You've told me more lies than the stars in the skies. Goodbye, my little Bonnie Blue Eyes. Later that year, Cleoma is featured on multiple sides for a DECA recording session. Continuing her practice of covering hillbilly and blues songs, she records Pine Solitaire, Lonesome Pine. L'amour indifférent, careless love. Love Letters in the Sand, and Jimmy Davis's hit, Nobody's Darling But Mine. She also rendered French versions of popular jazz numbers, such as Fats Waller's Lulu's Back in Town, and It's a Sin to Tell a Lie. Parler, parler, 
accompanied Cleoma, who sang on most of these recordings. Cleoma was on her way home after a session when her coat was caught on a moving vehicle. She was dragged for nearly a quarter of a mile. Badly injured, Cleoma was forced to give up music for a while. She returned for a brief period to record some radio transcriptions, but her quickly failing health necessitated her retirement altogether. She died in 1941 due to complications from this horrifying event. She was 35. As groundbreaking as Cleoma's career was, being the first person, let alone woman, to popularize Cajun music, the first woman to gain fame by performing Cajun music, and the first Cajun musician to record hillbilly and blues music, not many Cajun women followed in her wake. If you read histories of Cajun popular music, you'll find that it remained a male-dominated sphere. Cleoma was one of the few women who were able to maintain a public image of respectability while still pushing against the social strictures that necessitated women to perform a gendered domesticity. Think of Sarah Carter, whose music was billed as morally good and almost aggressively family-oriented, while she was unconventional in her personal life, divorcing her husband and bandmate AP in the height of Carter family success. Cleoma pushed Cajun music into new territories, both through her songwriting and song selection, and in her guitar playing, adopting and influencing a bluegrass strumming style. One has to think what would have happened had she not died at the age of 35. Thank you for listening to Wildwood Flower. We still have a few episodes left of season one. If you want to submit a cover song to be featured on the podcast, please get in touch with me on Instagram at wildwoodflowerpod or through email at wildwoodflowerpod at gmail.com. I'm accepting covers from any artists that we feature in this first season. You can look in the show description to see which ones are coming up if you want your song to be featured on the episode with the artist. I also want to do a covers episode that's just music. For this, I'll accept any song of any of the artists covered in season one. Go back and listen to some earlier episodes, be inspired, send me your songs, and I'll put them on the podcast. You don't even have to have a formed band All you got to do is be inspired, record, and send. Ways to support women in music and the podcast are in the show description, along with references and a song list from today's episode. The next episode, Lydia Mendoza. Thank you for listening to Wildwood Flower.